every day. But I remember after milking time, now some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, but uh, some of you do, don't you? After milking time, the milk was brought in, and it was put in my grandma's house in a little glass jug, probably a couple of gallon jugs, I don't really know. And uh, it would sit there, and some of you old people, tell me what would happen. The cream would rise to the top. That's exactly right. And uh, I'm looking out this morning, the cream has risen to the top. <laughs> All right, don't you dare tell Pastor Varna that I said that. But the truth is the, no, I'm sorry to say truth is truth. No, and then what would she do? She would skim, she'd take that cream off the top, and she had a crank-type churn. Some of them had the old type like that, and they would just beat it up and down. And, and how many times did I sit there and I just crank, as a, as a young boy, just sit there crank and crank and crank, and after a while it turned to, butter. Turn to butter. We don't have processes like that anymore, do we? But uh, I trust this morning that uh, the cream is going to rise to the top in each of our lives, in your life and in my life as well. Book of Colossians, if I were to title this message, which I did title it, uh, it would be entitled with a question. The <clears throat> question is, Who's in first place? Who is in first place? A theme or a thesis that Paul wrote to the Colossian Christians concerning Christ is summed up here in verse 18. And verse 18 has this to say, He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, now watch this, he may have the preeminence. So the question fits, who is in first place? This is a far cry from what is developed and developing in the Christian era in which we are living, that Christ is preeminent. The word preeminent simply means to have first place. Community Baptist Church has a, a phrase, it's on your bulletin. It was put there by the, the founders of the church. Who knows what it is? It's Philippians 1.16. I'll give you a hint. Holding, holding forth the word of life. That also is word of life, uh, Scroon Lake. And the 60 countries, 60 plus countries, which they're involved in, uh, that also is their logo, so to speak. Now, Piedmont International University, I think founded in 1945, Dr. Charles Stevens, loved the Lord, loved the book, loved believers, loved the church, but at Piedmont, that is on not holding forth, but what is on their crest is that in all things he might have the preeminence. 
And that's been the goal of Piedmont from the very inception and Dr. Stevens. As a matter of fact, they're a little disappointed. I went on their site just to see it again. And uh, I went all through the web and everything they got on the web, and I didn't see it. I probably ought to call them and complain them, complain to them, tell them the 50 cents that I'm supporting them by, by all means, I'm going to stop. No, by no stretch of the imagination. That's still the purpose of Piedmont, founded by Dr. Stevens, 1945, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So what are, who comes first in your life? Who has first place in your life? My goal this morning is for each one of us to see that Jesus Christ, as God sees Christ, see Him as God sees Him, leave here after coming to worship today and have Him as the foremost principal and important person in our lives. In other words, giving Him the preeminence. What's going on today? March Madness. Uh, how many ACC teams are left? One. One. And you know what a lot of those guys are going to do? They play today, right? They play in Kentucky. Got the work cut out for them today. But on both sides of the gym are going to be the UNC fans, the Kentucky fans. And there are going to be a lot of people who are going to stand up and yell. And every time Carolina does something good, they're going to say, we're number one, we're number one. Kentucky's going to be the same thing on the other side and all the other ball clubs. Are they? In reality, the teams that are left, what are eight teams left now? And a lot of people are going to just, I shouldn't use the word, going to make fools out of themselves about it. And yet, we drive down the road... And we find a man standing on a street corner somewhere just preaching his heart out. And we look at him and we say, what a fool he is. I wonder. I really wonder if we've got it right in this age in which we are living. So I, we need to develop three thoughts this morning for us. And that is, how can we say that Christ is number one? So three simple thoughts from our text this morning. And, and it's this. You're in the book of Colossians with me. Just follow as, as I follow through the, the text. We want to see who He is, what He has done for you. And also, we want to see how you have a different perspective of life. We find those three thoughts in our text before us, actually beginning with verse 9 and all the way down through verse 27. Uh, quite a text that it is. Let's pray. Ask God's blessings upon us that we may understand, first of all, who Christ is. And then that we might see what He's done for us as individuals. And then how we should be different. Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity to have the Word of God. Precious book. How many of us have this book in our, in our homes? Multiple copies of it. The Bible. 
We, we praise You that we have the book. We claim to be a people of the book, but are we? God, I ask You this morning that the Spirit of God will enlighten our hearts as to who the Savior really is and what He's done for us and our perspective of where we are in our Christian life. Help us. Speak, speak to us, Father, that we might leave here different, changed than when we came. We pray this and we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Who He is. First of all, note that He is the indescribable Christ. You could begin in the Gospels. John, John's Gospel lifts, lifts up the person of Christ. But Paul, in writing in verses 15 through 20, he gives us a little perspective of who Jesus Christ really is. There's five things here. The Bible says in verse 15, and follow with me, He is the image of the invisible God. You know, Jesus said, no man has seen God at any time. You couldn't see God and live. But He's the image of the invisible God. Exact likeness of the Father that we pray our prayers to. John the Baptist in chapter 1, verses 9, 10, and then 14, had this to say about Christ. There was a light. There was, a, there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He's talking about the person of Christ. He's the true light that comes into the world. And Christ enlightens every man. Verse 10. He was in the world. Now watch these next words. And the world was made through Him. And the world did not know Him. 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John could only declare, We saw His glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we find what John introduced, and John the Baptist was the one who introduced Christ to the world. Paul says, He is the very image. He's the icon. He's the exact likeness of the invisible God. Now, when you've seen Christ, you've seen the second person of the triune Godhead, but in character, He's same as the Father. And Christ was with His disciples for some three, three and a half years. And yet, even after walking with them, Him and them together daily, they didn't see it. John chapter 14. Night before Christ was crucified. You're familiar with John chapter 14. You hear those first six verses in every funeral. And in the midst of that, you find Philip, one of the disciples who's been with Christ, dropping down to verse 8 of John 14. Philip said to him, now listen, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Hmm. 
He's the image of the invisible God, the invisible Father. Jesus couldn't take that. And listen to Jesus' words. Show us the Father. This is Philip's words. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? That's a pretty stern rebuke, is it not? You walked with me for three years, and you still don't get it. You say, show us the Father. Jesus said, if you've seen me in character, you have seen the Father. And so, so Paul is saying here that Jesus is the image of the invisible God whom no man has seen and lived. Notice secondly here, he is in this indescribable terms that we find. Verse 15 again, Colossians 1.15. He's the firstborn over all creation. You see that? He is the firstborn over all creation. Now what does that mean? That doesn't mean that when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, He came into existence. That's heresy. It means this. It means that He is the highest in rank. Over everything. He ranks over all the created beings. He ranks over all humans. He ranks over all the angelic beings. It's impossible for Christ to be the creator and at the same time the created. He's the firstborn of all creation. He's eternal. When there was nothing that we know of of this world, there was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so he is, he's firstborn over all. Look at verse 16. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, principalities, or powers. He's the creator of all things. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God. The same was in the beginning with God. And he goes on to say that all things, verse 3 of John 1, all things were created by Him and for Him. The indescribable Christ, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the creator of all things. A.T. Robertson one of the few brilliant Baptists had this to say. He ranks over all of the created beings, human and angelic. Wow. And then he concludes, the permanence of the universe rests then on Christ far more than on gravity. It is a Christ-centered universe. Everything that is is Christ-centered. We need to comprehend that. We claim to be believers. He's a creator. Now, continuing here, 
He's the sustainer of all things. All things were created. I'm reading the last of verse 16. All things were created through Him and for Him, verse 17. And He is before all things, eternal in existence. And in Him all things consist. All things are held together. He's the sustainer. He sustains what He's created. Jesus is both the unifying principle and the personal sustainer of all creation. Did you know that there are more insects in a square mile than there are people on the face of the earth? He sustains those. Did not Scripture talk about when a sparrow falls from the air? Doesn't fall without the Heavenly Father, without the knowledge of Christ, without the knowledge of the Holy Spirit. I, th I think of this, and I've said it numerous times, I'm sure. When I think of myself, and I'm being held together by some atom power that's within me, and I'm made up of, <clears throat> no doubt, billions of molecules, and if Jesus Christ was to take his hand off of all of that, zap, I'm gone. Everything in this, on this earth, if he takes his hand off of it, you and I would be sitting on nothing. The pew you're sitting on, he's the sustainer of that. By him all things consist. They're held together. Is he not the indescribable Christ? And then verse 18. He's the head of the church, which is his body. The church is his. You are the body of Christ. And I read verse 18. He's the head of the body the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from all the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. God chose through the pen of the Apostle Paul to describe the church by using the anatomy of a body. It illustrates this point. What controls the body? The brain. Cut the head off. The body dies. If the head is confused, the entire body cannot function. I was thinking as I was preparing this about my mom. I think about mom a lot. She's 95 years old. My mom was a person who had it all together in her younger life. But you know, she now has dementia. And she cannot make a decision on her own. She fights the people that are there to take care of her. She hardly knows her three boys. Just a few months back, the three of us had the opportunity to stand in front of her together. It's been a long time since we've been able to do that. She was laying in her bed. She looked up and she smiled. And she said, Ted, Dean, and Pat. My wife goes in to see her. She doesn't remember who she is. She knows the face, but she cannot call the name. You know, my, 
Without Christ, the church would be like that. Not knowing how to take care of itself. Not knowing what to do. How sad it is in which we, we live. What if Christ developed dementia? And you know so many churches operate like he has it. It's like he's the brain and he's no longer able to function through the body. What a sad commentary. You notice what Paul said though in verse 18. Because of his indescribable character, the image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, creator of all things, sustainer of all that exists, head of the church. Paul used those last words, that in all things, he might have the preeminence. If, if this is the Christ that we claim we know, shouldn't he be in first place? Absolutely, he should be. And you know what the end, let me tell you what the end of all of this is going to be. We find, I'm reading 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 27 and 28. Listen. God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. In other words, God the Father has turned it all over to Christ. And he said, son, you take care of it. Now he can. He's capable. But I continue with verse 28. The Father has put everything in the hands under the feet of Christ. And then verse 28 says... When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him, the Father, who put all things in subjection unto Him, that God may be all in all. Flip the page, chapter 2 and verse 9. This is what Paul is saying of Christ. For in Him dwells the fullness of of the Godhead bodily. Wow. What a doctrine. And the Father has put everything into the hands of, of the Son. Now let me, let me just take you a little forward. Fast forward with me a minute. What's the next event on God's timetable? Rapture of the church. Seven years later, second coming of Christ. His feet are going to touch down on the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives is going to split. Two-thirds of the Jewish people are going to be annihilated, killed. One-third are going to make its way through the gap. That God's going to split the Mount of Olives to the east and to the west. And one-third of them, He's going to say, and then He's going to, he's going to cast Satan into the bottomless pit, bind him up, put him in chains for 1,000 years. End of that 1,000 years. That's the next millennium. That's the next dispensation. When that 1,000 years is done, listen, Jesus is going to take everything that has been from beginning of Genesis 1 
to the close of the book of Revelation. He's going to put it all in a big, beautiful box. He's going to wrap it. Going to be the most beautiful box you've ever seen, ever been. Now, this is imaginary, all right? And he's going to put a big bow on it. And in that box is everything, every event from Genesis to the Revelation. And he's going to say, Father, you gave me authority over everything. Now I've put it in this beautiful box here. It's for your glory. Can you imagine that? God has put everything under his feet. And he said, son, take care of it. You take care of it. And he's going to do it. He is the indescribable Christ. He's God in the flesh. And that's all good theology as far as I'm concerned. But let's notice second. What does that mean to you? How does that make a difference? What has he done for you? Go back up to... Verses 12 and 14. Don't miss this. What has he done? This is a prayer of Paul. And I'll pick up with verse 12. He says, In our prayers we should be giving thanks to the Father. Watch this next phrase. Who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Beloved, You'll go to heaven and you'll be wrapped up in that beautiful box. Because Jesus Christ has qualified you to be there. Wow. I like it, don't you? I'm not qualified to be a child of God. Jesus Christ has made me qualified and you too. That's what it means to you and Seeing what he has done. How did you do that? Well, we can drop down into verse 14 of 13. He's delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed un- us into the kingdom of the sons of love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. A number of things here. Five things, quickly, he's redeemed us. Verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Redeemed, I wish I had time to work with that one a while. It simply means delivered and bought back for his purpose. Then he says we're forgiven. The forgiveness of sins. Sending away our sins as far as the east is from the west. He's released us. He's pardoned us. We have complete forgiveness. The debt's paid. He paid it. And then you see He rescued us in verse 13. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness. The Lord's prayer is this. Quite literally, deliver... uh, Deliver us, Father. Literally, buying back, having been redeemed, forgiven, now rescued, is deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. Literally, 
Deliver me to yourself and for yourself. That is, Lord, deliver me out of my personal pains, my wishes, my desires, all that I am. Deliver me out of my pains and bring me to you and for you. Well, that's what he's saying. That's what he's done for you. Qualified us. Rescued us. And then he says, verse 13, he's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In other words, to change place. To move out of one place and into another place. God transferred us out of Satan's kingdom. And we became the children of God. How do you like that? That's what he's done. Qualified us as citizens of heaven. The word qualified here literally means he's qualified us to share with the inheritance of the saints. That means reaching a place of sufficiency and hence making someone qualified, able, competent. You have no competence of your own to please God in the flesh, in the old man. But now you're competent to do so because you're now a citizen of heaven. Qualified us. Now, what's the third thing? The third thing is how you should have now a different assessment of your life. And that's in verse 27 of this particular chapter. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Now here it is, which is, here it is. Christ in you, the hope of glory. You know, throughout the New Testament, that's, I love the book of Ephesians. And by the way, Ephesians and Colossians are kind of sister books. We study Ephesians more because there's more meet in there as far as doctrine and those things. But a lot of that which is doctrine in Ephesians becomes practical in Colossians. And so he brings to, brings to me a truth that I don't see in the book of Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians, I see the phrase in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. I'm, I'm told, I haven't checked it out, I haven't marked them, haven't read them, but I'm told that the word in, simple word, I-N, is used 116 times in the book of Ephesians. And most of those telling believers, you are now in Christ. You, remember, you see my big circle? The circle is Christ. Now, in means what? You're in Him. You're not epi upon Him. You're not dia all the way through Him. You are aim. Epsilon new. You are in Christ. But now watch what Paul says here in Colossians. I like this. 27. Christ in you. Wow. I'm in Christ. 
Christ is in me. Christ in you. That's our positional. That's our, it's a positional thing. Christ in you. Well, now that being so, what's the result of that? He's the hope of glory. That's my expectation. You see, the Christian hope of glory, it isn't our hard work or our devotion to God or the power of our own spirituality. Instead, it is the abiding presence of Christ, Christ in you, Christ in me. Therefore, I have an expectation now, and the word hope, I don't even like the word hope in the New Testament. Okay? I don't like it. Every time I think of hope, well, I hope I'm going to become a millionaire. And that ain't so. God called me to be just a poor, humble pastor, all right? Candidated for a church a number of years ago. Before I came here, that was, a church in Hawkinsville, Georgia. And the church, after I had candidated and preached, and one of the men on the search committee said, Mr. Hightower, we are looking for a poor, humble pastor. We want a pastor that's a Cadillac on an on a, on uh, A-model salary. I've been on an A-model salary. So do I hope to be a millionaire? Nope. That's why the word hope to me is not a good word. When you read the word hope in the New Testament, put the word expectation. Expect. Now, what did he say here? He said that Christ in you is the expectation of what? Glory. There's a big difference between what you hope you're going to get and what you get. So our anticipation is this. Glory. He's my ticket to heaven. Quickly. Gray had this to say, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery is something more than the gospel of our salvation. For that had not been hid in the Old Testament. It is altogether the unique blessing belonging only to the church in this dispensation. And is the indwelling of Christ. And note that this indwelling itself itself is not the glory spoken of, but the hope or the anticipation of the glory. Now here's what this includes. It includes the resurrection. It includes a new heart. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. It includes the unhindered development of a Christly life. It includes the coming back with Christ again to earth when He comes. It includes sharing the, in the triumphs of His reappearing. It includes sitting with Him on the throne as He sat down on His Father's throne with Him. And finally, it includes the glory of eternity. Heaven for how long? Forever and ever and ever.
That's Christ, the expectation of glory. So all of these things being so, the indescribable Christ, He's the one who qualified you as a citizen of heaven. And now your assessment is this, now Christ in you, the hope of glory. So where should he be in my life? Not UNC, not Duke for your Duke fan, not Clemson for your Clemson guys. Christ is number one. Number one. That's our Lord. He's worthy of all of that. Reading the expository dictionary had this to say. Christians are mainly divisible into three classes. Those who give Him place, those who give Him prominence, and those who give Him preeminence. Which class are you? You just give Him a place in your life? Or do you just say, okay, Lord, you're prominent. Christ, you're prominent. Or do do you say you're preeminent? When I live the rest of the day, I live it for you. When I wake tomorrow and I walk tomorrow, I walk for you. When I talk, I talk. For you. Everything that I am is for you. So you're not only in Christ. Christ is in you. Go back to that one little phrase, verse 18. That in all things, He might be preeminent. That's the thrust of this text. So much to be said that we don't have time to say. You give him preeminence. God did. God gave him preeminence. Let me read for you quickly Philippians chapter 2, verses 9, 10, and 11. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that in the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the name that the Father has given him. What name do you have for him? And then I think, I think that some may be here without him. You're not, my circle, you're not in Christ. You've never come to him for the forgiveness of your sins. You've never said, Christ, I'm an unsaved person. Save me. And you you need to be saved. You've never done that. So he can't be preeminent in your life until you have eternal life that he gives. The glorious life that he offers to you and to I. 
And if you've never come to Christ, I'm inviting you to do so today. But now for you and I who are here, as cream is written, no, that's pride. That's pure pride. As those who know Christ, in all things, may he have the, say it to me, say it to me, may he have the preeminence. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of the book, the great